In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Now in Genesis 47, we see how God blessed and spared the Egyptians when they valued the people of God. For the Lord is our defense, yea, so defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yea, so defend For the Lord is our defense, yea, so defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yea, so defend Looking at the opening six verses, although Pharaoh had invited Joseph's family to Egypt, it had taken considerable time to move everyone there. And as such, an appointment is eventually made for Pharaoh to meet Joseph's family. However, Joseph limits it to five of his brothers. We're not told why. And furthermore, while Joseph had mentioned Goshen twice, Pharaoh had not mentioned it. So this isn't quite yet sealed and settled. So Joseph tactfully mentions that his family is currently in Goshen. And the brothers then, when they come in, they confirm their desire to stay where they are. This location created a natural and important separation between the Egyptians and the children of Israel. And so Pharaoh, he confirms this plan and he authorizes Joseph to carry out the details you find in verses 11 and 12. And he also encourages Joseph to appoint any of his gifted brothers to be superintendents of the royal cattle. Such a position would give them increased protection from Pharaoh and help them as they settle in the land. In verses 7 through 10, Joseph then brings his father to stand before Pharaoh. And Jacob does, I think what we can say, an unusual thing, not what we're expecting. He, he, he blesses the foreign king at the commencement and close of their interaction. And this seems to signify in a subtle or not so subtle fashion his superiority as an older man who knew God. Now Jacob's not as rich as Pharaoh, he's not as powerful as Pharaoh, and yet he's still in a position to bless him. Now Pharaoh discerns that Jacob is an aging man. He's curious about this. Scholars actually tell us that the, the Egyptians viewed the ideal age, the ideal lifespan as 110 years. So, so Jacob's answer, it, it's, it's, it's beyond that. He's 130. And so he, he talks about having a hard life and the fact that his life was not like his father's. They lived even longer. So I'm not sure how Pharaoh would have viewed this. Perhaps maybe something of amazement and perhaps maybe even caused him to respect the very God who preserved his life so long. In verses 11 through 26, we're then given a summary of Joseph's agrarian policy. And it begins with his concern for his brothers and their families. The remaining years of the famine mean that the Egyptians had become dependent upon the state in order to survive. So Joseph then displays his wisdom in the saving of the people. The nationalization of the land and livestock turns the populace into effectively tenant farmers of the state. And this record of Joseph's care for Egypt and the, the prosperity of the nation despite the famine shows the thankfulness of the Egyptians. This expression of gratitude would have been instructive for many in future generations, especially the Egyptians who we know joined the children of Israel when they left Egypt. If you take a look at verse 18, you'll see there's a challenge to understand exactly where we are. Is this the second year of the famine? Is this two years after the arrival of Jacob? The desire they have for seed appears to reflect an expectation that the end of the famine was approaching, so that should be kept in mind. 
Verse 21 is also a little unusual. It probably refers to removing farmers from the nationalized lands and putting them in cities. It would be easier probably to care for them there. Now, some read this entire passage as if Joseph is acting like a tyrannical governor, but such ignore the testimony of the people. Quote, Thou hast saved our lives, we're told, they said. In verse 27 through 31, the record regarding Joseph's family is resumed, summarizing the prosperity enjoyed by everyone. We're then introduced to the approaching death of Jacob. And he has Joseph take an oath, an oath to bury him in the promised land, using the same gesture here that Abraham used when he requested his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And so we come to application one. Men should seek to have a skilled occupation. We have noted this from the opening chapters of Genesis. Men are identified by the work they do. There's, there's no escaping it. God has built great diversity of skill and interest into the human race, but it is incumbent upon all men to be employed in work which provides for them and their dependents in a way in which they can exercise their skills. Now, one of the blessings of the Protestant Reformation was that it resulted in increased literacy, uh, advanced technology, and actually produced a broader range of employments for men to give themselves to. It's a, it's a fascinating study in and of itself. And I've heard it said that if you can't bring honey into the hive, you'll be cast out as a drone. There needs to be a sense in every man that, that I have a work to do. And there are a few excuses, really, for young men today, at least living in, in the West, so let me urge you boys, and especially you young men, be diligent. Be diligent. Be diligent in developing marketable skills. Your interests need to make economic sense because, to be quite frank, it's hard to justify our choices if those choices mean that our wife is anxious all the time and our children are starving. So, so add value to your skill set and, and generally the marketplace will reward you. That, that's generally how it works. 2. Every kingdom looks for able men. Pharaoh is quick to perceive that, that Joseph's abilities are most likely not entirely unique to him, that his brothers may also have certain expertise that would be profitable for a nation, especially like Egypt. You see, the world understands the value of men of gift and, and what their gifting can bring. And while God's work advances despite the fact that not many mighty, not many noble are called, Yet we must be proactive to utilize gifting in the church wherever it's found. So Christian, don't sit on the fence or on the sidelines in the kingdom. Get involved. Show up at everything. And I can almost guarantee, nearly, nearly promise you, that God will find something for you to do for his name. He will, he will find a place where your gifting is used in a way you might never have imagined. Just, just be present. Show up. God will use you your life. 3. Dramatic changes in government can happen in a few short years. In a space of seven years, the abundance in Egypt flipped, resulting in changes which would really transform the nation and almost make it unrecognizable. Now, this is a reminder that nations can change very quickly. They can do so for good and they can do so for ill. And history shows us this happening economically, politically, and religiously. And so this should keep us from extremes, extremes of despair on one side, as well as pride. And it's also why we must pray over the Lord's Prayer, since it expresses both hope 
and humility for us and for our nation. 4. Taxes are necessary even under godly government. As I mentioned, Joseph has received a lot of criticism in his economic policy here, and especially for the tax rate he imposed on Egypt. Now, we don't know if there were other taxes, but let's just assume for a moment that they're paying a flat 20%. That would be very acceptable. Many argue, although I'm sure it's debated by some, that the Israelite paid about 23%. Now, in our modern world, we pay income taxes, we pay sales taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, estate taxes, capital gains taxes, <laughs> and on and on it goes. And after all is said and done, I think we'd be thankful if it was just a flat 20% tax rate. But without discussing what the ideal tax rate is, let us, let us not be found complaining over such things. When we do so, it's almost like we imagine our prosperity depends on the tax rate, but it doesn't. God imparts wealth. So, so let us trust him. Let, let us not be so dependent on good government in order to maintain and build upon our wealth. It's all up to God. Five, a man's word ought to be as sure as a written contract. When Jacob asks Joseph to promise to bury him in Canaan, a cultural gesture and his word become sufficient to alleviate his concerns. Now, while written contracts are helpful, in fact, we might say necessary, believers ought to so speak that their word is as sure as a contract. Now, we may fall short at times, I'm sure we do, but just as a contract reminds us of our obligations, so it should be when we're reminded of the things that we have said. May we be men of our word. And finally, dying wishes ought to reflect a life of faith. Jacob's desire to be buried in Canaan reflected his, his own faith in God's promises, but also it communicated to Joseph where his faith needed to be. By this time, it would have been, I imagine, very easy for Joseph to feel as much Egyptian as he was Hebrew. But his father's words were a reminder to him that, he did not ultimately belong in Egypt. So let me just close by addressing parents. Parents, make sure your children know what is important to you. Because what you consistently value is likely to have a profound impact on your children. Do not miscommunicate your values. It could destroy the very soul of your child. <laughs>